The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Hard to Believe, Answering Common Objections to Christianity. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Galatians 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm going to pray real quick again. Father, we thank you for, for this morning, um, for drawing us in to hear good news, to participate in song and liturgy, and to encounter your word this morning in the midst of our questions. And so I ask for your spirit to fill me up, to, to fill my mind with wisdom, to pour forth wisdom from my tongue, Lord, refrain me from saying things that are not from you and keep me to the words that you have for us this morning. I ask that you to open up our hearts and our minds to to explore honestly what you have for us in our scripture this morning as we wrestle with questions. As we do this, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we are in the middle of a sermon series uh, that we started a couple weeks ago called Hard to Believe, and this is a little bit different than our typical shtick um, here at Sacred City Church. We usually go through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through entire books of the Bible. Um, we just got done with Exodus, and, and in a few weeks we'll be jumping into the book of First Peter. And so we're very excited for that. But for right now, we're, we're taking this moment, this series, to, to stop and to look at six of the biggest objections that people have to the Christian faith. Now these Questions or these objections are, are oftentimes shared by skeptics as well as Christians, people who already are trusting in Christ, where the skeptics are typically unwilling to open themselves up to the idea of Christianity until there is some sort of resolution to these questions. There are Christians who have already accepted Jesus who are still wrestling with some of these doctrines of orthodox Christianity and so wrestling with their faith. And so it's good for us as a people, as a church, as a community, to wrestle through some of these questions. And maybe you don't have these objections that we've kind of highlighted or we will be highlighting through the remainder of the series, but chances are you know somebody who does have these questions. And so in order to engage missionally and apologetically with our friends and family and coworkers, we want to have an understanding of what these objections are, what these questions are, and how we can talk through those. So what this sermon series is really designed to do. This is not a a silver bullet. This is not going to provide you all the answers to your doubts and questions by no means. What Really what this is supposed to do is supposed to spark and nurture a dialogue. It's to help us to wrestle through our own doubts and reservations and to help create and nurture a dialogue with those people that we're on mission to. Like I said, the reality is this sermon series is not a silver bullet. This won't make all your questions and doubts magically disappear because many of our objections to the Christian faith are not so much intellectual, though some very well might be. Many of our doubts and questions are deeply personal. They've been influenced by our experiences and they carry a sense of emotional baggage with them. So this is why this sermon series is not sufficient to resolve all of your questions, but I believe it is helpful to begin a dialogue So if you are wrestling through doubts and questions about God, I would say that the best place to do so is within the body of Christ, within a missional community. 
Now, we're currently doing, as, as missional communities across the board here, we're currently doing a study that goes hand-in-hand hand with this series where it's giving you a, an opportunity, a platform to speak about these questions and doubts, to be honest with them and to wrestle through them for yourself. You see, a missional community is a safe place to be honest about where you stand with your faith and what it is you're wrestling with. So whether you're a Christian or you're a skeptic, your doubts will not leave you isolated or excluded. See, missional community is not a phony Bible study where you come in and at the end of the evening everybody is on the same page and miraculously we all agree. No, this missional community is a place for real people to think through real questions and seek real answers. And so I, I want to appeal to you to join us in community, to join us as we go through this dialogue of these big questions. And, and there's a, a map in the back of the room here if you want to find a missional community to get plugged into and to dialogue with these questions. And so with that appeal, I want to introduce you to our big question for the day, and that is, isn't Christianity repressive? Now, it's not uncommon for someone to look at Christianity and say, well, Christianity is a bunch of rules telling me what to do and what not to do. And as a result, those who break the rules are excluded from community and isolated. And so it seems that what Christianity does, it doesn't promote unity. What it does is it promotes division, that, that we're on the outside and you're on, or we're on the inside and you're on the outside. Now to those on the outside, it might seem like the insiders are enslaved, or at least uh, infantilized by Christian belief. They see the insiders being prescribed what to believe and what to practice in every specific part of life what you do with your body, what you do with your time, what you do with your money. See, this influences the way that you interact with other people. All your relationships are influenced by this belief. How your marriage is supposed to, to, to work is influenced by Christian beliefs. Right? Your worldview, the way that you view the world in general, is supposed to be influenced by Christian belief. And so what, what people think, people who hold this objection think, is that, you know, Christianity just seems like a straitjacket, right? It holds me back from the things that I want to do. What happens is the rules of Christianity keep me from expressing myself the way that I want to express myself. It stifles creativity and advancement. It controls the way that I think about things. It suppresses my desires. It becomes a one-size-fits-all approach to life. Now, this is a very common belief, but this isn't a new belief. All the way, dating all the way back to the 20th century, Emma Goldman was a, a 20th century social activist who said this, she said, Christianity is the leveler of the human race, the breaker of man's will to dare and to do, an iron net, a straitjacket, which does not let him expand or grow. Now, you can see why people might think that way. They look at Scripture and say, oh, it's got a bunch of do's and don'ts, all these commands, what to do, how, how to live my life. And it seems like it's oppressing, it's keeping people from living a free life, living the way that they feel like they were meant to live. Now, underneath this complaint, this, this sort of restriction or this limitation, 
underneath this complaint is a line of thinking that Christian belief endangers freedom. They argue that because Christianity says that a Christian ought to live a certain way in accordance with certain set of beliefs, it is limiting. Therefore, it is repressive to the freedoms of both the individual and the community. Therefore, since Christianity has these limits and these restrictions, it is the opponent of freedom. Now, as Americans, we value freedom, right? We celebrated Independence Day this past week. And I don't know about you, but my neighbors are still celebrating into the wee hours of the night. It's because this concept of freedom is embedded into our cultural DNA, that we are a free people who love liberty. So when a claim is made that Christianity is the opponent of freedom, we're we're kind of, we draw back from this in a way. It seems to be a legitimate claim because there are certainly restrictions upon a Christian community and the individual. However, there is a misconception in this argument about the essence of freedom that's embodied in the statement that, that Christianity is the opponent of freedom. See, this statement implies that there can be such thing as absolute freedom. And what I mean by absolute freedom is is the absolutely no restraints, no guiding principles, no rules of engagement, no moral or social codes to live by. Thus, with this absolute freedom, we have the freedom to determine our own moral standards apart from the outside influence of others. Now, Part of of the misconception of this idea of absolute freedom is that absolute freedom, this idea of no restrictions whatsoever, is an oversimplification of what freedom actually is. To only define freedom in negative terms, right, the absence of confinement or a restraint is a one-dimensional definition of freedom. Because in many cases, it is confinement and constraint that actually leads to liberation, For example, when the Founding Fathers declared their independence from Britain, right, this was a day, the 4th of July, actually I think it was the 2nd of July technically, was a day of freedom. John Adams, in reflection on this, he says, this is a day that ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance. So upon declaring their independence, the United States didn't didn't become a free-for-all, do-what-you-want sort of nation. See, not long after the Declaration of Independence came the Constitution, right? The governing law of the land. So to prevent the United States from becoming like Britain, there had to be ordinances and codes to protect that freedom. See, in this case, freedom is ensured by certain rules, laws, or codes which are still in effect for today. Here's why. Here's why our founding fathers did this. They believed there was a universal purpose and goal to to everyone's life. They said that we have been endowed unalienable rights, right? The life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
So even with this vague purpose, this is the purpose of the people that the founding fathers saw, this life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. So even with a vague and broad purpose like that, they say because there is this universal goal for all humanity, there have to be limits to protect that. See, because we have a goal, there are certain things that we are permitted to do and certain things that we are not permitted to do. Now, I realize this illustration starts to break down here, and we have to move away from it, because as a nation, when they were saying these things and putting out these important documents, they were not taking these things seriously for themselves, right? At the same time this was being written, there were people owning people. There's a hypocrisy to this statement, and, and we'll, we'll kind of get into this idea of hypocrisy in a couple of weeks. But as we look at this, you kind of get an idea uh, you, you, get, you can see in theory how this relationship between limitations and liberty work. See, to have freedom, there has to be limitations. And the limitations are set based upon purpose. Now, if we go back to this idea of absolute freedom, the only way absolute freedom can exist if, it, if there's no such thing as a universal purpose. Because once there is a purpose that exists, everyone is obligated to f- conform and fulfill it, thus limiting freedom, right? This is kind of a grim thought when you take it to its f- furthest extent, right? The only way for absolute freedom to exist is to strip everything of purpose. Now, there was a, a famous atheist named uh, Aldous Huxley, who, who, he was a skeptic for sure, and, and he was at least a consistent skeptic with his thoughts, because he came to the conclusion that if I want to be an atheist, if I want to say God has no control over me, that there's no rules for me, if I want to become the one who sets the rules, I have to remove purpose from everything. And so what he said, he said, I, I rejected God because I wanted to have my own boundaries. I wanted to have my own say in what to do for my life. It's basically what his argument came down to is, Because I want to sleep with whoever I want, I reject God and any of the limitations that he puts on me. And in order for him to do that, he knew he had to strip everything of purpose. Now, this is really a hard conclusion to come to because when you take it to the furthest degree, the implications are staggering. This means that we would have to strip love and marriage of its meaning in order to maintain open relationships, love without limits, We would have to render education useless because to study and to learn and to pursue knowledge would be some sort of, it would pose some sort of obligation to the truth. It means that we would have to throw out diet and nutrition out the window because obviously there are limitations when there's a diet and nutrition in your life. But I think what most, the majority of secular people, people who may reject Christianity and the rules and and all that sort of moral obligations, what they would agree to is that these things in themselves, right, love, education, fitness, nutrition, these are all good things, right? They're they're virtues almost. I don't know if you'd really call those virtues, but they're things that should be cultivated. They're, They're honorable things to pursue, And so what happens with this idea of absolute freedom is there's an irony here. The irony is that this absolute freedom turns into its own straitjacket. 
It's a straitjacket where life has no meaning. There is no purpose. It's, it's a sense where people are bound up by purposelessness, and we cannot give ourselves to anything of substance. See, when there is purpose, limits, rules, constraints, preserve and protect freedoms and accomplish the ultimate universal purpose. You see, a train can move freely across the country. That's the purpose of a train, to move from point A to point B, as long as it stays on the rails, as long as it's constrained to the rails. But you see, when a train is derailed and constraint is removed, it is unable to fulfill its purpose of reaching the destination. But it's more than just fulfilling a purpose, right? Limits are more than just helping us reach a purpose. It's, it's about helping us reach our full potential. Consider with me um, the great swimmer Michael Phelps, right? Michael Phelps, Olympic swimmer who's, who currently holds 28 Olympic medals. You could say that Phelps was made to swim, that it's, it's laced in his DNA. And, and he's been swimming at an, elite, at an elite level for several years. But in order to reach his full potential, he had to be incredibly disciplined. There was an article in Time Magazine back uh, during the, the Rio Olympics that sort of tracked his progress up to the Olympics. And, and he talked about the intense discipline that his coach had sort of imposed on him in order for him to reach his maximum potential. He, he had his sleep schedule dialed down to the minute, seven hours and 36 minutes a night, dialed in specifically. That's what his target was. He had huge specific diet. I mean, you would not believe how much this guy would eat. And he knew that he had to maintain this, this restriction of eating not too much uh, of the bad stuff and eating the right things and stick to this diet in order for his body to be at, at maximum functionality. He disciplined himself with hours and hours and hours of training. See, it's by yielding to certain limitations and disciplines, Michael Phelps was able to reach his full potential as an Olympic athlete. Now, the same principle applies to any trade or art, right? You might give yourself to years and years and years of practice. And in doing so, you're putting constraints on yourself. You're saying, I'm going to spend my time doing this and not that. You're, you're, you're limiting your time and focus. But what happens when you do that? What happens when you limit yourself to an area and, and develop a discipline? You unleash an ability that would otherwise go untapped. See, if you are disciplined in an area where you're naturally inclined, you are likely to get really good at it, and in getting really good at it, you're probably going to enjoy it. And in this experience, in this, in this uh, devotion to this art or trade or, or sport or hobby or whatever it may be, and then limiting yourself and becoming good at it, there is a freedom in that. So you experience a profound joy that exclaims, I was made for this. See, that's what liberation feels like. It's this idea that, that once I've 
come into something and, and I, I, it, it fills me up with life. It's this idea, I was made for this. That's what freedom feels like. See, discipline and constraints liberate us to our full potential when they suit our nature. See, that's an important part, when it suits our nature. See, restriction and discipline and constraint are not intrinsically and automatically liberating. There's no guarantee that if you, if you submit yourself to a bunch of rules, then you'll automatically feel some sort of liberation. Because if restrictions and constraints don't suit our natural capacity, they quickly become life-robbing. It becomes like a straitjacket. It is very possible to go overboard with rules, and what happens is that they eventually crush you because, one, they don't suit your nature, and two, they reveal how big of a failure you are. You see, because Michael Phelps' body was suited to be a swimmer, discipline helped him reach his full potential. But let me tell you this. Even the most intense discipline, right? If I were to submit myself to the training program and, and the eating and all the stuff that Michael Phelps does, I would not become an Olympic swimmer, right? I'm not suited to be an Olympic swimmer. I was not built for that. I'm more of a floater than a swimmer. So all the discipline in the world would only ever leave me with participation medals and utterly frustrated. See, that's the the effect of unsuitable constraints. It leaves us frustrated, defeated. It does feel like a straitjacket, like doing something that's not meant for me, that's not in my natural bent. See, there's no doubt, right? I think we can all agree that the wrong limitations achieves the opposite of liberation. But I hope you see here, just in this brief moment that we've had, that freedom is not the absence of all restrictions, nor is it the embrace of all, all restrictions. The key to finding freedom, to finding liberation, is finding the right constrictions or restrictions based upon our nature. Right? This is how guidance counselors help students find their right career path. Right? What are you naturally inclined toward? What do you like to do? Okay, we'll put you on this path. We'll, we'll give you these certain disciplines to follow, to train and develop those natural giftings. So to, to understand as humans, what is it? What are the rules? What are the limitations that help us flourish, that help us reach our maximum potential? What is it that we are inclined toward? What is the environment that liberates us if we can find ourselves to it? Like, what, what's the equivalent for the human as water is to fish? The answer to that question is love. Our natural capacity, our natural leaning, no matter who you are, where you are, is to love and to be loved. Because we are fundamentally lovers, Right? Romantic love, platonic love, brotherly love. We long for affections and desire to give it. If you just take a survey of pop culture, if you look at all the songs, all the poetry, 
um, the novels, movies, the thread that is shared with all of those things is this desire for love. We as a culture crave it. We were made for it. Because, here's why, because to love and be loved is to be human. Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, says, one of the principles of love, either love from a friend or romantic love, is that you have to lose independence to attain greater intimacy. That if you want the freedoms of love, the fulfillment, security, sense of worth that it brings, you must limit your freedoms in many ways. See, what this tells us is that love will limit us. What we love will set the limitations in our life. Because if we desire to love and be loved, there are certain things that we need to do and certain things that we need to refrain from in order to maintain and develop that relationship, right? If I love my wife, I will refrain myself from intimate relationships with any other woman. If I love my friend, I will limit what I say about that person and how I speak of them. But I will also step into things, that there are freedoms that I can do. I can enjoy my wife. I can enjoy the intimacy of that relationship. I can foster that with my friends. I'm going to speak highly of them because I love them. I want them to be encouraged. I want them to be built up. So there's things that we do and don't do based upon what we love. What we love sets limitations. And these constraints and these limitations enable us to maintain and develop these relationships with the people that we love. You see, like Phelps' coach, he looked at Michael Phelps' natural capacity and laid out wise constraints which liberated him to become a great swimmer. Now, God does the same thing with us. He lays out restrictions that liberate us to our full potential of loving God and loving others. You see, one of the misconceptions about the Bible is that this is just a bunch of of rules. But really, when you read the Bible from cover to cover, what you find that this is a love story. This is a story of God's love for his people, his pursuit of them. So in telling this love story, not only does does God convey his love for us, but he also tells us what it looks like to respond in loving ways toward God and towards others. Right? The, the purpose of all the, the rules of the Bible are about maintaining and developing love. That is the goal. That is the target of all of these things that God lays out for us as his people to observe. See, the Bible isn't full of rules that are bad and oppressing. That they, don't, they don't keep us from our maximum potential. No, no, no. It's the opposite of that. That these rules that God lays out leads to our flourishing. They are really an extension of God's love. They are there to protect our freedom to love and to be loved by others. See, we we went through the book of Exodus, um, and and a couple months ago, um, we spent 10 weeks going through the Ten Commandments. And one of the things in in Exodus that's super critical to understand about where... um, 
where the commandments fall. A lot of people think Christianity is about following the right rules and then you'll be saved by God, right? Submit yourself to the process, go through the hoops, do what you're supposed to do, and then you'll be fit for God's love and acceptance. But, but actually what we saw in the book of Exodus is that God saved his people first. He delivered them first. He liberated them first. And then he lays out these Ten Commandments, which are there to protect the freedom that God has given them. See, these Ten Commandments, if you just look in the Old Testament, what they really are is an extension of God's love for his people. Think of it like this. I've got a three-year-old boy named Kuiper, and we like to go on a walk. We got a dog a few weeks ago, and so we walk all the time now, and so that's a lot of fun. But as we're walking along the busy street, I don't know if you've met my son, but he is nuts, and he will run around. He will go wherever he pleases. So one of the things that I do, when, when I'm walking beside him on a busy street, I take his hand and I hold on to it. Now in the moment, to him, that feels like oppressive restraint, right? He, he feels like, I can't do what I want to do. I want to run around. I want to I run ahead. I want to run in the street. I want to cross the street. I want to do all this stuff. But I, I'm saying, no, no, no. I got to hold on to you. I got to keep you tight. Now, why do I do that? Why would a dad hold his kid's hand? It's because it's an, it's an extension of love. I'm, I'm holding on to my son because I love him and I want him to flourish. I want what's best for him. And so in that moment, holding his hand near the busy street is the best thing that I can do to love him. You see, God is like that too. Right? He holds our hand. He keeps us restrained to a certain degree so that we can reach our full potential. See, that's how a Christian views the rules, right? The rules and laws that's laid out in Scripture. That there are constraints that God gives to us that lead us to be fully human, right? These are social and moral guides given to us by a loving God that are designed to unleash our full potential. Now, this is why what Paul says in Galatians 5, right, when he says, for freedom Christ has set us free, right, this is why it's such a big deal. Because at the time that Paul is writing to the Galatians, the Galatians have dabbled on both sides of the misconception of freedom, that they've, they've thought that absolute freedom is the way to live, to, to absolutely have no restraint, to do what I want, to do what, whatever, what I want whenever I want. See, when Paul met the Galatians, they were trying to accomplish freedom in that manner. And what Paul describes this approach to life as is giving yourself over to the works of the flesh. And in his other writings, he talks about how the flesh, to be in the flesh, is to be enslaved, to be restrained. Although it looks like you're free to do what you want, there is an oppression within that. He, if you look at um, Galatians chapter 5, Verse 19, this, this is what he says. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Here they are. He lays them out. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says that if you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
See, the common denominator, when you look at all of these things, the, the works of the flesh, the thing that unifies all of these acts is that they are unloving. They're unloving to your neighbor, to your friend, to your coworker, to your family. But they're unloving toward God. And so what these things produce is essentially a straitjacket of self-absorption of, of meaninglessness, of purposelessness. And so when Paul planted the Galatian church back in Acts 16, he came and he preached the gospel to them. He liberated them from the straight jackets of sin, removing the burden of sin's guilt and shame. And he proclaimed to them the forgiveness and acceptance that God offers through Jesus Christ for those who would believe. And in, in light of this teaching, he says, this, this teaching doesn't just leave you to kind of figure out your own way. This, this teaching instructs you that as you believe, you receive the spirit of God, that he moves into your heart. And, and as you have the spirit, the spirit is with you, teaching you how to live. And so this is what it looks like to live in the spirit. And he lays this out. He, he reminds them the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, he says says that those who belong to Christ have been crucified to the flesh with its passions and desires, that if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit, that there is a certain way to live, that the, the Spirit provides certain restrictions for us within the gospel. And so for a moment, for a time, this was great for the Galatian people, right? The church blew up as the gospel was proclaimed. People were coming to faith, being baptized, MCs were multiplying. It was a great season of life in this church plant. But guess what happened? People came in and said, you know what? What Paul said about the gospel, about just embracing Christ by faith and letting the spirit of God uh, change you and, and lead you in how you live, there's actually more to it. That it's, it's actually faith plus circumcision, right? Following extra rules. And then when you have faith plus the circumcision, plus these extra rules, then God will accept you. Then you'll be brought into the kingdom. Then everything will be squared away. Now, these man-made rules that these false teachers superimposed upon Christian faith, it's no shock that it kept people from coming to the faith, right? They're saying that you're not a real Christian until you go under the knife. You know, that, that Christian thing, the faith in Jesus, that sounds kind of nice, but to, to go under the knife, no thank you. I think I'll just go all my way. See, these extra rules that were put on top of the Christian faith kept people from coming to Jesus. They were rules, extra rules that was like a straitjacket. It limited people and kept them from the freedom that God meant for them to experience. See, the Galatian people, they heard this teaching, and, and for some reason they accepted it. Oh, you know what? That's, that's not a, a huge deal. Well, well, they'll adopt the theology grace plus doing these extra rules is, is what helps justify us. But Paul, oh, thank God for Paul. He writes to them, he says, no, that is a straight jacket. These extra rules have taken you too far. They do not produce liberty. They produce restriction. 
He says that these, this call for, for circumcision and these other laws that they lay out, they are not a mandatory part of God's design to promote flourishing. Now, there is freedom to do these things if you so desire. There is no law against it. But Paul says this is not part of justification. You are not. He says, you know what? If you want to, if you want to say to be circ- to 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 be justified, you have to have faith and be circumcised. You know what? Then you have to fulfill the whole law. You want that straight jacket? We're going to snug it up a little bit. You you are obligated to fulfill the whole law in order to be accepted. Now, as you can imagine, these extra rules are are exactly that. They're a straitjacket. Right? So here we have the Galatian church on, on both. Uh, when Paul found them, they, were, they had fallen off one side of the horse, that they had given themselves to licentiousness, doing whatever they want. And, and in, in an attempt to get back up on the horse, they fell off the other side and they fell into this, this legalism, more rules, moralism, doing more. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not licentiousness, doing what you want, and grace is there, and God will love you no matter what. No, no. And it's not follow these rules and do something a certain way. That then God will love you. It's not that the gospel is different from this. So then what exactly are the guiding principles? What are the rules for the Christian church? And Paul, I read him off already, he, he says what, the guiding principle for the Christian church can be summarized like this. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. But here's the thing, that the fruit of the Spirit, that these things, these distinctives, can only be simultaneously cultivated when we experience the gospel. It's not until we experience God's love that we are liberated to live within these restrictions. Now, what is God's, what is the evidence for God's love for us? Right? If it's, if it's by experiencing God's love first, then we're enabled to live within these parameters that he laid. Like, what's the evidence for God's love for us? It's this, and this is why Christianity is unique and different from every other religion. Because what God does in Christianity is absurd to other religions. See, it's this, that God, the infinite, ultimate being, limited himself in order to pour out his love for us. That in Jesus Christ, God put on flesh and subjected himself to the human limitations and boundaries that we all experience. He, he became familiar with suffering and with weakness. And he even experienced death, right? It's this death on a cross where he subjected himself to the ultimate limitation of our humanity. And this wasn't just any death. This was a righteous man who died a sinner's death to offer forgiveness as an expression of God's love for his people. Jesus says in John 15, 13, there is no greater love than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. See, in the ultimate expression of God's love, 
Jesus laid down his life for all who would come to him. All who would trust that they have been made right with God because, only because of the work of Christ. It's not by avoiding the rules. It's not by following the rules to a T, but it's by faith in Christ. See, and it's here that Jesus' work on the cross that liberates us. It offers us uh, freedom from licentiousness, right? The straitjacket of sin, of the flesh, of meaninglessness, of purposelessness. As well as a freedom from the straitjacket of legalism. The obligation to perfectly fulfill the law. And what it does, it brings us into a true freedom to live life by the Spirit. To live life with the right restrictions. To be constrained by love. To allow us to love God and love others by keeping our life within the parameters that God has laid out for us. And in James, James chapter 1, he says, what God lays out for us here is the law of liberty, that in these parameters, there's freedom. There's freedom to, to reach our ultimate purpose, to love God and to love other people. Now, C.S. Lewis in, in The Four Loves, he, he writes about this. His friend was asked this question one time. He said, uh, the question goes like this. Is it easy to love God? And what this guy replied, he says, it is easy to those who do it. That sounds kind of like a paradox, right? Is it easy to love God? It's easy for those who do it. But it's not quite as paradoxical as you might think because when you fall in love, right, when you meet that girl and you fall head over heels for her, you want to please the beloved, right? Your buddies might see you acting like a fool. You're doing all this stuff for her, right? You're, you're, you're anticipating her needs, and they're like, dude, you are whipped. And the guy in the moment, he's like, no way. I love this girl so much that I'm willing to do anything for her. So for that guy, in the moment there, the, the restrictions that love has bound him to, they don't feel oppressive. They feel like a liberation to, to, to express Love. And so for a Christian, it is the same with Jesus, that the love of Christ constrains us. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, that in our love for Christ, that we have certain limitations, but we are happy and delighted to, to live within those because in those restrictions, there is freedom. Because once you realize how Jesus has limited himself for you, how he has given himself up for you, you are not afraid to give yourself up, to give up what seems like freedom in order to find true freedom. Friends, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that you are a God unlike any other, that you express your love for us in becoming like us, yet you refrained from sin. You kept yourself pure. You maintained a life of perfection in Christ. You loved God perfectly. You loved others perfectly. 
And as a, a perfect expression of love, you went to the cross for us. And Father, we are grateful for Jesus and his sacrifice, for that love that's poured out. We're thankful that he has limited himself for us. And so, Father, I pray today that, that those who might be skeptical of the Christian faith see it as repressive, that before, the, before they sense a call to come and obey, to, to live within a certain set of restrictions, would they come and experience a Savior who was restricted for them, who loved them perfectly? And, Father, as we all see the gospel for what it is, Father, would you, would you provoke a desire within us to love you rightly, to refrain from the flesh, and to give ourselves to the Spirit, to live in step with the Spirit from this day forward. It's in Jesus' name we pray.